Good morning. That was my bad. What would you think if the Lord Jesus wrote up an evaluation of our church and sent it to us? Here's where you're doing well. Here's where you're not doing well. Here's what you need to change. What do you think he would say? How do you think we would fare? And since we as individuals make up the church, the evaluation of us as a church would simply be the composite evaluation of each one of us as individuals. So what do you think Jesus would say about you? I think I can tell you because he makes just such an evaluation in the book of Revelation. Jesus evaluated seven churches in Asia Minor around 96 AD. The church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And we have their report cards recorded for us in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. I want to look at those this morning in an overview, and then when I speak on weekends in the future, I want to dissect each one of these letters. And I want to suggest to you that every professing Christian fits into one of these seven categories. As we go through this today, each one of these letters represents a letter Jesus would write to us as a church today and or Jesus would write to you as an individual today. Now, whenever I say I'm going to teach from the book of Revelation, I get two prominent responses. Some people say this is going to be confusing because nobody can understand the book of Revelation. And usually when I hear that, I ask, have you read it? And they say, no. Somebody told me that. So my challenge, if you have that perspective, is to read the book of Revelation slowly and pray that God would help you understand it because it's very understandable. The other response I get is, all right, we're going to finally get some meat. These are prophecy freaks. You can recognize them. They open their Bible. Instead of having maps in the back, they've got charts that fold out, explaining every detail of the future. They love to debate with you what the fifth horn in Daniel's vision was. They open the newspaper, and they see everything happening relating to prophecy. That plane that disappeared, it was a 777. Read your Bible. God took it. Listen, don't get 
carried away with the details of prophecy and miss its purpose. Prophecy is not just history written beforehand. Prophecy is preaching intended to change your life. God didn't give you prophetic truth to turn you into a spiritual Sherlock Holmes. He gave you spiritual truth to turn you into a more spiritually committed follower of Jesus Christ. He tells us the purpose right at the beginning of the book. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which were written in it, for the time is near. What are you supposed to do? Read, hear, and debate. No. Read, hear, and heed. The word heed means to do. So God didn't tell us these things to scratch the itch of a few freaks. He told us these things to have an impact on the way we live our lives. See, God doesn't expect you just to know that the tribulation is coming. He expects you to live like it. God doesn't just expect you to know that the earth will one day be destroyed with fire. He wants you to live like it. God doesn't want you to just know that Jesus will come back one day. He wants you to live like it. He doesn't just want you to know that you will spend eternity with him. He wants you to live like it. That's the purpose of prophecy. Now, my Bible has a title for this book in bold letters. It says, The Revelation of John. I don't know who wrote that, but this is not the Revelation of John. You know what this is? First verse, first words. The Revelation of who? Jesus. It's not the Revelation of John. It's the Revelation of Jesus. The word revelation means uncovering or unveiling. It's the idea of what a what an artist does when they have a sculpture and they cover it with a sheet and they gather everyone around and they pull the sheet off and they unveil the majesty. This book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ in His full glory. The first time Jesus came, He was veiled. His majesty was veiled. His deity veiled. His glory Veiled, people looked at him and said, that can't be God. Because he's veiled. But here we see him in his full majesty, his full glory, his full manifestation. He is unveiled. And this unveiling of Jesus is communicated to John, and then John communicates it to us. And he begins with a personal testimony in verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John wrote from the island of Patmos. Now, when you hear island, don't think Aruba. Patmos was a rocky, barren island about 20 miles in circumference. 
where they banish criminals. Don't think Aruba, think Alcatraz. John is on this Isle of Patmos because of his crimes. And what were his crimes? He tells us in this verse. It was because of his faithful following of Jesus Christ and proclaiming his word. Now, they didn't meet many guards because he's out on an island and sea is all around him, prohibiting him from getting to shore, prohibiting him from being with the people that he cares about in Asia Minor. But though John is isolated, he's not alone. Because verse 10 says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He was isolated but not alone. The Spirit of God was inside of him. And he says, I heard behind me a loud voice, like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book. And he says in verse 12, I turned and I saw. And what did he see? He says, I saw one like a son of man standing in the middle of seven lamps. And then he describes him. He had a robe reaching to his feet. He had a golden belt. He had head and hair that were white like snow, like white wool. He had eyes like a flame of fire. He had feet like burnished bronze glowing in a furnace. He had a voice like the sound of many waters, like Niagara Falls. In his right hand he held seven stars. Out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face shone like the sun. Who is this? Look at verse 17. He says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Who is this? It's Jesus. And I want you to notice John's response in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now John had seen Jesus many times before. But Jesus was always veiled. John walked with him. He sat at the table with him. He's the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest. He prayed with him, he lived with him, but he had never seen him like this. John had always seen his glory and deity veiled. And now John turns around and he stares face to face with unveiled deity and he falls down like a dead man. John sees a lot of things in this book. He sees the throne in heaven. He sees what looks like a crystal sea in front of it. He sees these seven burning lampstands. He sees the pearly gates. He sees streets of gold. He gets to see heaven. He gets to see hell. He gets to see the tribulation and all the devastation on the earth. But nothing knocks him down except Seeing the 
the glory of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when he sees that, he falls down like a dead man. Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And he tells John to write it in a book. And he gives him the outline for the book in verse 19. I wish Jesus would give me the outlines for my messages. Here's the outline for the book. Three things. Write the things which you have seen. That's verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1. Write the things which are presently. That's chapters 2 and 3. And then write the things which shall take place after this. And that's chapter 4 to the end of the book. If you look at chapter 4, the verse... First verse says, after these things I saw. Everything from that point forward is future from today. Now this morning I want to concentrate on the things which are in chapters 2 and 3. Seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor. Seven letters in which Jesus evaluates each church. Now, if you look on a map, you'll find that this area in Asia Minor is very small. There were other churches at that time in Asia Minor, but he picks out seven. You say, well, why does he send this huge prophetic book about the rest of the world and what's going to happen in the rest of time and eternity? Why does he write it to seven churches in a little geographic area in Asia Minor? Well, there are two prominent views. I'll share them with you. Number one is the chronological view. And that view is that these seven churches portray to us prophetically all of church history. That each one of these churches represents a stage in the universal church's development. Ephesus is the apostolic church. The second stage is Smyrna, the post-apostolic church, and on and on, and then today... We are in the age of the Laodicean church. Now, I don't hold that view. Let me give you two reasons why. Number one, you'll find churches of all seven styles in every era of the church. In the first century, were were they all Ephesian-type churches? No. There were good churches and bad churches. There were good churches like the church at Philippi where Paul says nothing but good things. He only says one negative thing about them. He says you got two ladies that can't get along. And we can solve that. And then he writes, as Ryan mentioned, to the church at Corinth and he's got a laundry list of major sins going on in that church. Every church is represented in every era. Let me give you a second objection to that view. How could the return of Christ be viewed as imminent if there was this prophetic course that had to be carried out before Jesus could come back? See, if you figured out, you were in the middle of the church age and you figured out, we're Thyatira. Jesus can't come back today because there's three more ages that have to happen. See, I don't hold that chronological view. The view I hold is called the cross-sectional view. And that is that these seven churches 
are representative of the different types of churches that exist in every age. He didn't pick 13, he picked seven. The number seven in the Bible has the idea of completion. What he's saying is, this is the complete picture of the kind of churches that will exist at any given point throughout the history of the church age on earth. Whenever you look around at any point in time, you will find suffering churches like Smyrna. You will find dead churches like Sardis. You will find lukewarm churches like Laodicea. I'm sure you've experienced that. If you've ever searched for a church, you may have gone to two or three churches and say they're all different. Why are they different? Well, because if you have a majority of Ephesian-type church members, you'll have an Ephesian-type church. If you have a majority of Laodicean-type church members, you'll have a Laodicean-type church. What I want to do this morning is give you a thumbnail picture of each one of these churches. And I imagine you're going to be sitting there going, I know a church like this. Or I used to go to a church like that, but that's not really what I want you to do today. As you listen to these thumbnail sketches of the various churches, I want you to think about which church are we. But more importantly, I want you to ask yourself, what kind of Christian am I? Because you're in here. The first church is the church at Ephesus. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, Jesus has wonderful things to say about this church until he gets to verse 4 where he says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. This is the church that has fallen out of love with Jesus. The warmth is gone. The fire is flickering. The flame has waned. They're cooling off. They've got their doctrine straight, but they're cold. They're doing things for God. But it's methodical. They're busy. But they've lost that burning, hot, fresh love for Jesus. It's no coincidence that the metaphor given in Scripture for Jesus' relationship with his church is a romantic relationship. Jesus isn't calling you to be his buddy. Jesus isn't calling you to be his friend. Jesus isn't just following you to be, or calling you to be his follower. He is calling you to be his bride. That's the picture. A bride and groom. That's why the the question that Jesus asked Peter by the seashore in John 21 is paramount for all of us, and that is this question. Do you love me? Do you love me? 
Do you love me? Second church is Smyrna. Their letter is in chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. And here's what characterizes this church. Look at verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty. Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is the suffering church. The persecuted church. Are there suffering churches today? In North Korea today, the majority of Christians there are in prison camps for their faith in Jesus Christ. In Saudi Arabia, there is no religious freedom. It's Islam or else. And the or else is death. Public conversion to Christianity is punishable by death. There are suffering, persecuted churches today. You know what's interesting? Jesus writes to this suffering church at Smyrna, and he doesn't point out anything wrong with this church. Why is that? Because we're like gold, and when we get in the fire, what does it do? It purifies us. When gold gets in the fire, the dross, the impurities rise to the top, and and the goldsmith wipes them off. See, Jesus' church can handle the fire. We don't do so well in the comfort zone. When the stakes are high, people stop playing church. That's the church of Smyrna. Third church is the church at Pergamum. You can read their letter in chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. I would sum it up this way. This is the church that is married to the world. Every decision they make is socially oriented. They're not really saying, what does God want us to do? They are saying, what will appeal to other people? And so they are the church that compromises. They lower their standards to appeal to people. They are following the exhortation to be out in the world, but they're of the world. They're no different from the world. They're not separated, they're not distinct, and they're making no impact. Fourth church is the church at Thyatira in chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. What characterizes this church? Look at verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. This church is characterized by having false teaching and sin. And I want you to understand those two things go together. That was a problem in Corinth. They not only had sin, they had false teaching because you always have those two together. Whenever you tolerate false doctrine and water down the truth, sin follows. 
And we can see that illustrated in many ways today. There are churches that used to carry the gospel to the world. Now they go to the world and just feed people and care for people or try to fight for their civil liberties instead of sharing the gospel with them. What have they done? They've compromised the truth. People today say, well, you shouldn't be hung up on doctrine. Doctrine divides. We need to lower the doctrine, water down the doctrine, and then we'll have more love. Forget about the inspiration of Scripture. Don't don't get hung up on the deity of Jesus or His blood atonement or His literal return. What happens? Sin. See, the message matters. What you believe, what you believe affects how you behave. Thyatira believed wrong, and so they acted wrong. Fifth church is Sardis. Their letter is in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. Notice what Jesus says to them at the end of verse 1. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. You have a name that says life. If you go out in front of this church, they have a great sign with a great name. Church of Jesus. The church of the resurrection. The church of the ascension. Jesus says, great name, but in reality, you're dead. Somebody mows the lawn. Somebody turns on the lights. Somebody sings, somebody preaches, somebody prays. But you're dead. You're not a church at all because you have no life. Sixth church is Philadelphia. This is the church of the open door, chapter 3 and verse 8. Jesus said, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Church of the open door. It's not the idea that their door is open to anybody coming in. The idea is the door is open for them to go out into the world and grab those opportunities to share the gospel. This is the church aflame with evangelism. This is the church that is mission-minded. This is the church in love with Jesus Christ that wants to bring him glory by going out and sharing that message with the world around them. The church of Philadelphia. And then there's a final church, a seventh church. It's the church at Laodicea. You can read their letter in chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. This is the apostate church. Chapter 3 and verse 15, Jesus says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you or spew you out of my mouth. This is a church that's rich, and they think they have need of nothing. This is the church that has everything but God. This is the church that doesn't need Jesus. 
they're too self-sufficient and too proud. So this is the counterfeit church. And sadly, this is the church that sickens God and nauseates Jesus. Well, there are the seven types of churches. Did you find us in there? Or more importantly, did you find yourself in there? Did you locate your report card? You see, although our church will tend to be a certain type of church, one of these seven churches, there are probably individuals of all different types in this church. And so I want to help you find your report card today by making this more personal. And as I describe these seven report cards, I challenge you to find yours. There are some Ephesian types in this church. Just as there was an Ephesian type church, there's an Ephesian type church member. Some of you are sitting here and you've left your first love for Jesus Christ. If you're honest, Christianity for you is less about passion and more about performance. You're just going through the motions. Oh, you're saved. You can look back and say, I made a commitment to Jesus Christ. But the reality is that that relationship is no longer fresh. It's no longer vital. It's no longer vibrant. You do your part, but there's no real, fervent, warm, dynamic love in your life that compels you to go out and reach people with the gospel. You don't have the love that you used to have that you couldn't wait to share with someone else. What happens when someone is in love? They tell everybody about it. Well, you're not telling anybody about it. Why? You've left your first love. There's no more burning heart, no more hungering soul, no more thirst for God. Is that you? There are some Smyrna types in this church. People who are suffering for Jesus Christ. They're willing to stand up for Jesus no matter what it costs. There are people here who will share the message of Jesus Christ no matter what people say, no matter how much they badmouth them or bash them or criticize them, no matter what it costs. There are people who, here who will pay for their boldness for Christ by suffering. Is that you? There are some Pergamum types in this church. You're married to the world. 
And you know how you can know that? You're preoccupied with your money, your car, your house, your job, materialism. Your chief ambition is to make yourself famous rather than make Jesus famous. Your focus is on yourself and how attractive you are to the world. And you just won't cut that cord. And so you compromise with the world and with Satan. When it comes right down to it, you're unwilling to pay the price of being a true disciple. And so you reduce your standards to court the world. And because you're still calling yourself a Christian, you bring disrepute to Jesus' name. There are some Thyatira types in this church. You're characterized by sin and false doctrine. You're hiding sin in your life and you're justifying it by false teaching. People always ask me, they say, I, I, I knew a guy that was really solid doctrinally, he really understand the, understood the truth, and now today he's way over here, he says he doesn't believe any of that stuff. What happened to him? I've seen this pattern over and over again. The root of it is sin. When you commit sin, you've got two options. You can do what the Bible says or you can change the Bible. When you sin, guilt comes, and that guilt is a good thing because it makes you do something about your sin. And what we're supposed to do according to God's word is confess it and repent and come back to the foot of the cross in humility to Jesus Christ. When a person refuses to do that and hangs on to that sin, they still have the guilt. So to get rid of the guilt, what do they do? I'm not going to go confess it. I'm not going to get away from it. I'm going to keep it. What do they do? They have to change their belief structure and say, I don't believe God thinks this is sin anymore. Why do they do that? Makes them feel good. Gets rid of the guilt. Thyatira types. There are some Sardis types in this church. You claim to be a Christian, but you know you're not. You have a name that says you're alive, but you're dead. Spiritually, nobody's at home. You couldn't get excited if Jesus walked in here today. You drag in, you drag out, you walk around through life in a spiritual stupor. Nothing happens significantly for eternity in your life because you're dead. You're dormant. There are some Philadelphia types in this church. People who are fruitful faithful, in love with Jesus. They have a burning desire to share him with others. They're reaching out. They're missionary-minded. They're zealous. 
They see open doors everywhere. Everywhere's an opportunity. You talk to this person, they've always got a story about who they shared the gospel with recently or who they led to the Lord. When's the last time you shared the gospel with someone? If you can't remember, then you're not a Philadelphia type. And finally, there are some Laodicean types in this church. You're not hot, you're not cold. You're lukewarm. You're rich, you're self-dependent, you're proud. You think you're okay? You think you don't need God? You think he's okay with you because you're religious, but you're not right with God. And one day you're going to stand before Jesus and say, Lord, Lord. And he's going to say, depart from me. For I never knew you. Which report card is yours? You're one of these right now. If you're like me, you kind of waffle between a couple of them. That was me last week. This is me today. Which report card is you? And then let let me ask a follow-up question. Are you satisfied with where you're at? Because your life isn't over. The beautiful thing is you can change. In fact, to every one of these churches except Smyrna, the suffering church, and Philadelphia, the church of the open door, Christ has a common solution. He has a common plea. And that is repent. Repent. Repent is not a three-year U-turn. Repent is when you run into a wall and you're broken and you get up and you go the opposite direction. That's what Jesus says to you today. If you see yourself in one of these letters, repent. Stop pursuing the things you're pursuing. Turn around and pursue Jesus Christ. Repent, humble yourself before him and he will transform your life. I think it's fitting today that we're going to close our service by taking communion together. Paul wrote to that Corinthian church that had all those problems, and he said, I want you to examine yourselves and then come and eat. Don't examine yourself and go away. Examine yourself, deal with it properly, repent before the Lord. You don't have to wait three years Come and meet me at the cross. There's no better picture of the love relationship Jesus has with us than the bread and the cup.
because that's where he expressed his love for you when he laid down his life for you. And he's asking you to repent and come back to your first love. Are you going to do what he's telling you to do? Let's pray. And then I want you to take this opportunity to examine yourselves and then come and share in the bread and the cup, the symbol of his body and his blood. Let's pray. Father, thank you. that your word is that sharp two-edged sword that just cuts us and lays us bare before you. There's no hiding. There's no plain church. Lord, thank you for these letters that just are so honest and open about your evaluation of us. Lord, I pray that we would be honest before you today. And wherever we see ourselves, that we would respond in repentance to you. doesn't matter if it's a big sin, a small sin, whatever we view it as, it's sin. And Lord, we desire that our lives would please you. So we pray that you would turn our eyes away from everything else except Jesus today. And bring us to true repentance before you that would transform our lives going forward to be those people about whom you can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Thank you for this bread and this cup representing the cross that makes forgiveness possible. Thank you that it flows so freely from your grace. Bring us back to the cross today and change our lives as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.